hormone harmony is not just a supplement for women going through perimenopause, menopause, or postmenopause. It's become a phenomenon. Women cannot stop talking about it on social media. A bottle of hormone harmony is sold every 24 seconds. Happy Mammoth, the company that created Hormone Harmony, is dedicated to making women's lives easier. That means using only science-backed ingredients that have been proven to work for women. They make no compromise when it comes to quality, and it shows. Hormone Harmony contains science-backed herbal extracts called adaptogens. Now, here's the beauty about adaptogens. They help the body adapt to any stressors, like chaotic hormonal changes that happen naturally throughout a woman's life. So, Hormone Harmony isn't just for menopause. Any women with symptoms of hormonal imbalances can take it, but it's perfect for those with those horrible menopause symptoms that put a woman's life on hold. Hot flashes and night sweats, racing thoughts and low moods, poor sleep and feeling tired all the time, occasional bloating and gas, no desire to be in bed next to someone, if you know what I mean. Yeah, Hormone Harmony can help with all of these things. And the biggest benefit feeling like myself again. And that's what women mention over and over in the reviews. There are over 17,000 reviews for Hormone Harmony. For a limited time, you can get 15% off your entire first order at happymammoth.com. Just use our code, which is the acronym of the podcast, T-S-N-O-T-Y-A-W at checkout. That's the podcast acronym at checkout at happymammoth.com calling all memoirists. I'm so excited to let you know that I've put together an incredible all about memoir lineup for Saturday the 11th of May from 10 a.m. to 5 p.m. Eastern Time in which six amazing speakers guide you through everything you need to know to write a memoir that will sell. You'll get opportunities to ask questions of best-selling memoirists while also standing a chance to have your query letter live critiqued during the webinar. To see the awesome lineup and to register, go to biancamaray.com. There's an early bird promotion for the first 50 delegates who sign up. Come and join us and get your memoir groove on. Hi there and welcome to our show, The Shit No One Tells You About Writing. I'm Bianca Murray, and I'm joined by Carly Waters and Cece Lira from PS Literary Agency. Today's guest is the author of the novels Appleseed, Scrapper, and In the House Upon the Dirt Between the Lake and the Woods. Can I just say what an excellent title that is? As well as the short story collection A Tree or a Person or a Wall, a nonfiction book about the classic video game Baldur's Gate 2, and several other titles. A native of Michigan, he teaches creative writing at Arizona State University. It's my pleasure to welcome Matt Bell. Matt, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah, how wonderful to chat to you. And, you know, can I just say how much I love that, you know, this is a book on craft that is written by somebody who has actually written novels. Because what really freaks me out is, you know, I'm an author myself, and I'm also a creative writing instructor. And you see really, really best-selling books on craft that are written by people who have never published a book. And, you know, I firmly believe that in order to be able to tell people how they should be writing books, that should be based on personal experience. So before we get into the nitty gritty of the book that we're discussing today, and for our listeners, it's called Refuse to be Done. Could you take us a bit through your background in writing and as an instructor? 
Sure. I, you know, started writing seriously when I was 20 or 21, writing mostly fiction, but, you know, some other things. And again, publishing in maybe the mid 2000s when I was, you know, 25 or 26. I was kind of a serial college dropout as an undergrad student. So I went to three universities and graduated when I was 26 with an English degree, but then did an MFA in creative writing at Holy Green State in Ohio, finishing when I was about 30. And so my first book came out the next year, a book of short stories, and refused to be done as my ninth book. So I've written four novels and then uh, a couple books of nonfiction and then some story collections. And yeah, as far as teaching, I've you know been teaching since I started grad school in 2008, but I've been a professor since 2012. So I taught for two years at Northern Michigan University in the Upper Peninsula of Michigan, and then I've been at Arizona State. This is my eighth year. I also worked as a book editor for four years at the Zank Books, so a literary nonprofit press that publishes mostly fiction, but some poetry and nonfiction. So a little bit on you know each part of the sort of triangle there of writer and editor and teacher. I've been lucky to have all of those experiences. Yeah, geez. So for our listeners, someone who is very, very qualified to be giving writing advice. So could you tell us a bit about the genesis of this book? You know, was it something that was inspired years ago, perhaps as you were struggling through your own debut novel, etc.? Is it something that was inspired by, you know, your teaching? Where did this idea come from? And can you work us through how long it took you to write this? Sure. Both of those things, right? You know, when I finished the first draft of In the House, I realized I really didn't know how to revise so much material. You know, there's like 300 or 400 pages of sort of rough, rough, rough material that was there. You know, short stories is the same thing, but I feel like I just sort of brute forced my way through it, right? You just sort of kept doing it or trying new things until it worked, but not really systematically. And the idea of just trying to figure it out with a novel for that long seemed really daunting. So, you know, some of it was looking for ways to revise more diligently or more directly. And I think the two things that really came out of that process that are like the seeds of the book is one is the kind of second draft method of like mapping a rough first draft into an outline, revising that outline into a plan for a second draft and sort of rewriting was really crucial. Something that's really stayed with me and really gets done in everything I write now. And the other was this idea of like a layered approach to the polishing work. You know, even I, I just sort of remember at some point realizing like I could just do all the dialogue through the book. And I'll come back and do like all the chapter ends or something. And that was such a productive way of proceeding. So those are like the seeds. And then I've been giving it as a craft lecture for maybe 10 years. You know, I think when I started teaching, it, it became a lecture that was like my traveling show. Like I'd be asked to be at a conference or something and I would give this revision lecture. And I teach novel writing workshops. So some of it comes out of that. So again, sort of this combination. But I think the earliest version of the lecture that became this book, I probably wrote 10 years ago. So it, it has been material that's been sort of accumulating and being refined over over time. Yeah. And, you know, I don't know about you, but I can honestly say that since I started teaching creative writing, I've become a much better writer because I feel that as writers, we are voracious readers. And so for many of us, we approach story like instinctually and we kind of feel at what points things need to happen. But once you need to start explaining that to people who don't approach it the same way, it really helps you reframe in your mind how storytelling works. Have you found that the same for you as well? 
Yeah, I think that's absolutely right. I think especially that idea of people who don't write the same way as you. Like I, I'm a fairly like idiosyncratic writer. Like most people don't write books the way I write books. And that's, you know, so the goal with students can't be make everybody write the way I do. But I do think trying to help them with whatever they're doing and trying to help them with whatever genre they're writing in has made me have more approaches than I used to have, right? It was sort of like, this is the way I see how to do it. And now I think I'm much more like, these are the options. And that feels useful. It also made me a better reader to teach. I felt like you can't teach people in genres that you don't read. And, you know, so many of my students are working in different parts of the literary world than I am. It's like some responsibility to sort of know what they're writing into. So it's been interesting the way that it's broadened me both as a writer, but also as a reader, just to try to do a good job in the classroom. Yeah, and I remember early on, you know, I was always a terrible reviewer of books. I could say to people, I liked mm. it or I didn't like it. And I couldn't, <laughs> I couldn't articulate why. And I must be honest, there was a part that I was very resistant to picking books apart because I felt like that was cutting a body apart to find the soul. But, you know, I am now much more appreciative of a reader when I see this, you know, sleight of hand when I see this magic trick and then I, I figure out how the author did it. It brings me so much joy to be able to do that. So, you know, that was something I was nervous of and it, it actually wasn't the way I thought. And what you've mm -hmm. just said about the layered approach to writing, 100% agree with that because when you try and come back and revise and you try and do everything you do everything really shittily as opposed to right. <laughs> doing one thing really well in those revisions. And I mean, you know, people say writing is rewriting, but for most agents, their busiest time for submissions is December. And that is because of NaNoWriMo. People mm. pound out a book in November. They don't relook at it and, and they send it out on submission without at all revising it. And I used to hate revising, but honestly, now that is where the magic happens. So, so can you take yeah. us through like some of that? Yeah, I mean, I think a lot of people are really resistant to revising in the beginning. And I'm, I'm sure I was as well, although it seems like it's, it's such an important part of my process that that can't be true. But I mean, truly what you say too, like once you build a revision process that works for you, the results are so good, it's hard to imagine not doing it. Like even if I wrote a really clean first draft, I would still wonder what a rewrite of that looked like, you know, like sort of can you go farther than it? And that seems so exciting. I think the resistance to revising is maybe like two main things, one of which is it costs you so much to make the first draft, especially when you're starting out, that the idea of like throwing it away or starting over just seems impossible. You know, I think one of my, my favorite sort of exercises is where you pick the best sentence from something you've written and then like start over from it. And like the idea of doing that when you've written one short story is like, you, you know, there's no way to like be like the other 99% of this was just to get you to the sentence and I'll start from there. And But, you know, but it works. And I think the other part is just not knowing what to do in revision. It's sort of, I don't know about your experience, but I was in so many workshops where I was assigned to revise, like it turned into a revision for a final paper or something, right? And you were supposed to take all the stuff you heard in workshop and then like make it better. But it wasn't even really clear how to do that or, or how all those disparate suggestions would sort of become a better version. I, you know, I never thought about this really until right this second. But I think one of the things that's interesting about, about Refuse to be Done is it's a very extensive revision process that does not require outside feedback. 
It's a process you can do to something entirely on your own, and there's all this to do. And I think that's pretty rare as like a approach, or certainly it should be a rare educational approach, which is the class has to have something to do, so we give revision advice, right? Yeah, and that is rare. And you know, so many listeners of the podcast reach out and go, I don't know how to find people to read my work, and I don't know how to find beta readers. And so I'm constantly sort of doing writing group matchups and things like that. But yeah, it is useful to have this tool whereby, you know, if you don't have a writing group, if you don't have other people to speak to, that this is, you know, something you can use by yourself, that'll get you very, very far, which is, you know, quite rare because most times we write something and then we are so damn close to it that we mm -hmm. cannot see where the weaknesses are, etc., etc. So to have this kind of resource is absolutely amazing. And, you know, you've said, so this book breaks it up into three different sections. Can you take us a little bit through each of those sections? Sure. So, you know, obviously the title, subtitle of the book says, you know, how to write and rewrite a novel in three drafts. And then the book immediately backtracks a little bit, right? And says like stages, not drafts, <laughs> which is, I think, fair and, and honest, you know, but how to do it in three stages is a bad subtitle. So the first draft, the first stage is what I think of as uh, like an exploratory draft that requires generative revision. So, you know, you're studying the material you're making to find more material. So it's all those sort of practices in that part of the book are really ways to stay excited and continue through the process of writing a first draft. The second draft is what calls narrative revision and is looking at how we look at the plot and the structure of the book, especially in order to make the best possible version of that. And then the third draft is polishing revision and really about making that turn from like the writer's experience to the best possible reading experience. And, you know, that's the part, that's probably the part that most people think of as revision is like sort of making everything sound a little better, making things a little tighter, you know, that sort of late stage material. But there really is like so, so many different ways of turning back into the work to progress it. And I think the book's trying to show what might be most useful at each stage. Although I'm sure this is similar for you. So much of that kind of stuff I do throughout the book and over and over. Like it's not sort of, none of it's like you get to do this once and you never have to do it again. And some of the things that are in the third stage book are really useful in the first stage and, and vice versa. It does give it at least some organization as opposed to just being a list of ideas. You could try yeah. yeah, no, very helpful and actionable, which I like because I'm terrible yeah. with, you know, when I get this sort of vague advice and I'm like, okay, well, that's great. But how do I actually right. practically apply that? And, and something that I found fascinating because I've now interviewed many, many authors for the podcast. And I'd actually say that men and women approach editing quite differently because, you know, I interviewed Jeffrey Diva and then Sanjeev Sohota, who has, you know, won all these awards. And they both felt that, you know, if something is not working, it's a cheat to try and go back and fix it, they both just mm. scrap it completely. Like whatever mm. they've written, if it wasn't working, they scrap it entirely, even if they're on like 50,000 words and they start all over again. Whereas I feel like women are more likely to go, okay, let's see what I can keep. What can I work here? What can I finesse? What needs to go? So how does the book enable people to find a better way of doing something while still kind of staying clear to their process. Because I find that emerging writers are always trying to look for that magical thing. Yeah. Like, what is the one thing that's going to fix it? And honestly, every writer has a different way of doing things because our brains are different. We wire differently. So, you know, how will that help writers who, who have different approaches? 
Yeah, I think that's absolutely right. There's lots of ways to sort of do this and, and none of them are right or wrong. It's just what works for you. I mean, I think one of the goals for the book is definitely not to be like prescriptive, right? It's not like this is the only way to do it. I think including some of those things like rewriting the second draft rather than trying to tinker it into a better book. I remember the first time I told, you know, writer friends I did that and they were just like, why? Like, how do you ever get a book done? You know, it's like, but my books don't take any longer than theirs. It's just part of the process. You know, when I hear that, like, I never revise anything, I just throw away it doesn't work that to me sounds like that is a process of revision right it's like each one of those is a way of thinking about story or thinking about the thematic material that person is working with or the emotional material they're working with and there's just they're looking for the right expression of it as opposed to trying to make this thing into something else so yeah i think i i like to give people options i like there to be lots of ways to do things i think a lot of the activities in the book are less about like this will make something work exactly this way but like by doing this it's another way like a door back into the work while you're going around looking at your verb choices you're really considering everything else you're doing so there are ways to approach the book as opposed to like when these 10 things are done the book will be finished because that's what would be a lie anyway but also it's just not how we write yeah yeah, and what you've said there just about verb choices is so true because it sounds so simple. Go check your verb choices and then check your adverbs or whatever. But once you get a handle on that, honestly, it changes so much of your writing. It just tightens it up so much. Once you can start looking at your adjectives and your adverbs and just using much stronger verbs and then using stronger verbs leads then like when you're looking at dialogue, it looks to going how are action beats with verbs and description, how do they add more than just like a dialogue tag, which just mm -hmm. has a generic verb there like said, which then requires you to you know, qualify how they said that, etc. So, you know, it seems super simple, but once you master each thing, it just keeps elevating the writing. Yeah. And I think it's, I think it's worth saying too, that mastering it is like in this manuscript, right? My drafts are full of weak verb choices. And then I go back, you know, and, and so the end, it looks stronger, but it is amazing how often you punch up a verb and you can delete another sentence or something, right? Or are all these extra clauses that we're trying to make a weak verb interesting. And then you put the good verb in there and you're like, oh, I don't need all this adornment now because I have the right sort of thing. And it becomes so much more efficient. And I, I don't think that was obvious to me in the past. You know, I always said like use punchier verbs, but like they really, really do save you a lot of prose, I think, when you do that. So it's, you're editing two things, right? You're making the book more concise and you're making the action more vivid, even though all you're really doing is like scanning verbs and gerunds and playing with that, right? Yeah, yeah it's a kind of alchemy there in itself. And I love that it's not prescriptive because, you know, I remember many years ago when I started my first novel, I had a creative writing instructor who almost made me give up writing. He said that there was one way to write a novel and it was his way. And, you know, I struggle when someone tells me that there's one way to do something and that it's it's a their way, because really, there are so many different ways of doing it. And, you know, I just kind of really pushed back against that. And also, I didn't really like his novels. I'd read his novels, and I, I didn't think they were that great. So, you know, it's all good and well that he's like, there's, there's this is one way in my way, and it's great. And I was like, well, I don't know that your work's that great. And so, you know, I love that it's not saying to people, there is one way to do it, throw away all the other books, this is the only way to do it. Because that's certainly, that's not true when it comes to creative writing. And I know, Matt, that you will know 
that, you know, as creative writing instructors, we have got this huge responsibility because we have got students who have full of self-doubt. They really are. They really are. And they got this talent, but they don't trust their talent and they don't trust themselves and they don't trust their voice. And you want to give them that confidence so that they can create, but you also want to elevate the work at the same time. And so, you know, it's, it's a very, very fine balance. Can you speak to that as well? Yeah. You know, some of that's, of course, like taking their goal seriously and their want seriously and, and listening to them when they tell you that, you know, some of it's really small stuff. Like, I don't know what it's like in the workshops you were in, but we always read things like entirely cold, like no preamble, no context. You know, I've seen try like a little letter where they're like, this is the genre I'm writing in. And this is who I like other writers. I think the work is in conversation with this is where I'm at the process. And just then you can meet the work where it exists instead of, you know, like, it's very weird to be, we just, we're not read in the real world in this like void, right? You're read in a context. And I think one of the other things that I've gotten better at in teaching is seeing the stage a piece is in. And sometimes I can just see it for myself, like a short story for a workshop where the first half of it, the person had more time or had a better clear idea of what the story was. And the second half, it gets like really thin or doesn't work in a certain way. But like, we don't need to judge that as a finished product. It's just, this is where, this is a snapshot of a process. And so being able to like have the class talk about it that way, or even ask the writer, is this the place where like you ran out of time or something? They're always like, yes, absolutely. I did my homework at midnight last night, right? And, and I think the other half of it is I'm teaching this generative novel class I teach like every 18 months where everybody starts from scratch and they write a novel together. And so they go through the phases together, but some people are workshopping something they've been working on for two weeks, right? So we'll see like a first chapter and it's got three openings and there's all this backstory. And every time someone says a sentence and there's like nine pages of memories and it's like, it's clearly not a good first chapter, but it's a very good first two weeks of work on a novel where they're learning all this stuff about their characters and the world. And, you know, eventually all this stuff will just be implied, but first they have to make it so they can imply it later. And learning how to show them how the process is working in the pages they brought to class and why it's working well. And they know it's not a good first chapter. Like it doesn't look like any first chapter in any book, but being able to sort of show them that what they're doing is actually like exactly what they should be doing is something I've gotten much better at than I was 10 years ago. Yeah. And you know what, writing that, it feels like a waste and you feel like, okay, I've got to scrap it. I have to throw it away. But to get to the good stuff, you had to write that first. You know, again, to find out what works, you have to figure out what doesn't work. And I feel like each book, we have to relearn how to write a book because each story has to be written differently. You know, I'm writing a book now where I'm, I eventually had to stop the beginning of the novel because I had to figure out all the damn backstory and not all of it's going to make it into the novel, but I need to know that the characters need to know it. It needs to inform Mm -hmm. everything. So it's been like a bit of a juggling act there, but yeah, it's all part of the process. hundred percent. So Matt, thanks so much for joining us today for our listeners. I'm going to add this title to our bookshop.org page, our affiliate page. If you buy from there, you support an indie bookstore, you support Matt, and you will support the podcast in the process. The book is Refuse to be Done, How to Write and Rewrite a Novel in Three Drafts slash Stages, and I highly, highly recommend it. Thanks so much for joining us, Matt. Thanks so much for having me. It was a pleasure. Did you know that 70% of all books are sold online via e-commerce? If you're an author wondering how you can get some of that market share, this is for you. Hi, I'm your co-host Carly Waters, and I'm here to tell you how writers can work on their author brand to build an audience and convert those followers into book buyers. 
Do you ever wonder why so many authors publish their books and later say they didn't sell as many copies as they wanted? It happens over and over and it's all over social media. Authors really think it's a them problem, but not always. They really just weren't shown the way. And I don't want you guys to launch a book and show up at book events and have two people in the chairs. I have helped clients launch books to the bestseller list for over 15 years. I have now built a six module, 10 hour course with all my knowledge, and that will give you the craft and book business information that you won't find anywhere else. And there's an app. Over 100 of you have already joined my new course. And writer Siobhan Moore said, I'm halfway through the course and grieving that I didn't have this information sooner. There's really nowhere else to find it. Worth every penny. Thank you, Siobhan. If you want all that info and everything that will change the course of your writing career, go to carlywaters.com slash course to learn more and use discount code POD15 for the month of April at checkout. That's POD, P-O-D 15 at checkout over at carlywaters.com slash course. Hi everyone, this is Cece. If you're a fan of books with hooks, then you've probably heard me use the term interiority. I often catch myself saying things like, these pages need more interiority, or the interiority here needs work. And that's because interiority is a super important element of storytelling. It's what makes books unique. But as it turns out, a lot of you have questions about what exactly is interiority and how to properly weave it into stories, which is why I'm teaching my popular writing interiority class in a new two-day format. We'll meet on Thursday, June 6 at 8 p.m. via Zoom to cover all things interiority, including the difference between interiority and emotions, how interiority is different from telling, how to leverage interiority into plot points, how to strike a balance between interiority and mystery, and more. And then we'll meet again for a live cozy Q&A session on Monday, June 10th also at 8 p.m. via Zoom, in which you'll have the opportunity to turn your camera on if you choose. If you're interested, check out the link in my bio on Instagram, and I hope to see you there. We'll be kicking off today's episode by inviting you, our listener, to picture a scene. Picture Amanda. Amanda is 26 years old. She's wearing a chunky sweater. And right now, she's sitting in front of her computer, staring at a query letter about to press send. But before she does, she takes a sip of her coffee and reads it one more time. Dear Ms. Parker, happy Monday. I hope you're doing well. I read that your principle for acquiring books is to make unheard voices heard, and I admire that so much and thought you may enjoy my novel 20-something. Kate, Lauren, Olivia, and Max are assistants to some of the most powerful men in publishing, television, film, and news. They work their soul-cycled, avocado-toasted asses off for these misogynistic, mansplaining, condescending, and inappropriate men they simultaneously hate and someday hope to be. After one especially stressful task involving an interrupted orgasm, cupcakes, and getting yelled at over an intercom at an elementary school, Kate has an idea. If all assistants feel the way they do, and all assistants band together to decide they won't tolerate their boss's behavior anymore, then maybe their bosses, or even their entire industries, would need to reevaluate what's acceptable. There's one thing the four of them know for sure. Powerful men are nothing without their even more powerful assistants. To avoid being immediately fired, they give themselves nicknames. The aggressive one, the bossy one, the bitchy one, and the emotional one four words that only carry negative connotations when used to describe women, and they create 20-something, a blog to share their stories in an effort to bring overworked, overtired, and underpaid assistants together. 
However, after Lauren pens a story about her experience with sexual harassment in the workplace and Olivia writes a follow-up about her own, 20-something blows up. Thousands of women, anonymously and then openly, come forward with accusations against their bosses that far surpass Kate's original, my boss is an ass. The blog and its thousands of submissions are the source of the takedown of more than two dozen industry men, including Max's boss, who were using their power to manipulate and take advantage of women like them. 20-something and the four powerful women behind it quickly becomes famous for eliminating one of Hollywood's and maybe society's most well-known open secret. If you're a man, rich, and successful, you can apparently get away with anything. 20-something is a work of fiction finished at 90,000 words. It is broken into four parts, one narrated by each of the four women as they tell the story of the blog and their experiences at the time of its conception. I work in the entertainment industry and have spent many years as an intern or assistant to anchors, actors, producers, and directors. I've experienced everything from potentially being a getaway driver in a drug deal and working 12-hour days in a warehouse with no running water to flying across the country to pick up a suit and being called fat by my only ever female boss. This is my first novel. Below are the first 25 pages. I'd love the opportunity to show you more if you're interested. Best, Amanda. Oh, and we forgot to tell you when this scene took place. It was back in 2018. That query letter, it landed Amanda, her agent, Liz Parker at Verve Talent and Literary Agency. But there's more. On March 8th, 2022, the book you heard about in that letter became a published novel. The new title is Smile and Look Pretty, and it was published by Park Row Books, an imprint of HarperCollins. And today, Amanda is here with me. Amanda Pellegrino is a TV screenwriter and novelist living in New York City, whose writing has appeared in Refinery29 and Bustle. Smile and Look Pretty is her debut novel. Please join me in welcoming Amanda Pellegrino. Thank you so much for having me. I'm so excited to talk. Thank you. And thank you for being such a generous person and sharing that query letter with us, for letting me create this scene to our listeners. Listeners, I hope you enjoyed that. I was trying not to laugh as I read those words because I felt I felt both like sophisticated and silly at the same time. <laughs> it was fantastic. I loved it. Okay. So can you take us actually back to 2018 though? And Walk us through like what that was like for you. How long, my first question is, how long did it take you to write the draft that you sent to Liz? So I'll preface the answer to that question with, I had written another book before this and queried it to agents for months and didn't really get any bites. I had a couple people request full manuscripts but for the most part, no one was super interested. And what I learned in that process was that sometimes it can take three months for an agent to respond. So towards the end of querying that, I started writing Smile and Look Pretty. And it took me about three months to write, which is crazy. That is so fast. It was unheard of. I've now like written my second book and it took me like a year. And so I realize now how nuts that is. <laughs> And I will never be able to do it again, but I wrote it really quickly and then figured that it would take a couple months for agents to get back to me. So I queried it like essentially the day I finished writing, like maybe a day or two later. I think I did one kind of frantic read through of it, but I really figured, which is, I would not recommend that... (laughs) 
I would have time to edit as I'm waiting for people to respond because that was my experience with my other book. I'm laughing because we always say don't do this, right? Like Carly published this great uh, posted, sorry, this great reel on Instagram. I felt like don't do that. And yet you did it and it worked. (laughs) I know it's terrible advice. It really is. But I will say, so I queried it. And then within an hour, I had like three full requests. The hook is great. The hook is amazing, right? Like an agent as agents, we're like looking for hooks. So it's like an amazing hook. Yes. Send that to me. (laughs) Exactly. Yeah, it was. I mean, I used to work in PR, so I know how to write a good like query letter, I guess. But it was. So then what did you do? Like you had a whole bunch of full requests and it wasn't polished. Did you just send them the draft? I sure did. Oh my gosh. Oh my gosh. I did because they, they also say like, you know, don't wait too long. Cause like, you're not supposed to do it until it's ready. And you don't want agents. A, I mean, you never want to put an agent in a position of having to follow up because that's insane expectation. And you don't want to make them think that it's not ready. So I did, I sent it. And then like within the week I signed with Liz. Oh my gosh. Okay. Wait. So I want to, okay. First of all, listeners, please don't do this. (laughs) What happened to Amanda was very much the exception and you shouldn't plan to be the exception. Although honestly, it's kind of a cool story. So if it does, if anyone does do it, which we're not recommending and it does lend you an agent, we definitely want to hear about it. Anyway, okay, so take me back. So you sent out the query, you got a few bites. Was Liz the first to offer? She was the first to offer and my top agent. Yeah. And I you also your dream agent. I love that. Yeah, I truly did. It was really exciting. And I, you know, I write for TV. And so the only I only went out to like five or six agents at that one day and they were all agents at agencies that repped film and TV writers because I was like working my way up on set and in writers rooms and knew that I eventually would need to be repped on that side. And it is, I had no idea how to get a TV agent. And so the easier way, which I say with air quotes, which no one on a podcast can see, obviously (laughs) is to write a whole book and then get repped for television and then have them connect you that way. But one of the things I really loved that Liz did when I had like that dream phone call, I was really upfront and told her that I want TV representation too. And I've been working in the industry for years. And she essentially was like, look, that's super cool. I haven't read any of your pilots, so I can't guarantee it, but you know, you would be in the agency. So that path is a little easier, but you know, can't make any guarantees. And I just found that to be really refreshing. You mean the honesty, like the fact that she was just, she was just like super direct with you and like interested. Is that what you mean? Yeah. She was just so direct about it. And I, you know, I like appreciated it the second she said that, cause it's really easy to just yes, man, someone in order to get them to sign with you and then have it not come true or not happen. Or she genuinely had no idea if I was even good at it. So making a lot of promises and I've realized now having gone through like a couple book deals with her and working with her for a number of years now, how important it is to have someone who won't yes man you. And who, you know, if I pitch her an idea 
and she doesn't like it, she will tell me this isn't good enough. Try again. And it's like such a resource to have someone who you really trust. Cause then when I pitch her an idea and she, you know, uses a hundred exclamation points and says she loves it so much. I know that it's like the one that I need to keep moving forward with. Like could not agree more. It's so valuable to have someone who tells it like it is, who's just direct, right? Like you have to have that kind of direct line of communication where you can just say things and be super honest with people because not everything sells and not every great idea or what we think is a great idea is the best book to write. And so I think that's awesome. I think that's really amazing. Okay. So you signed with Liz and then what? Like how long did the revisions take? What happened after? And am I making this up or did you actually share the email that she sent to you on your Instagram? I did share it because I actually like have it a little frame of it near my desk. Um, Okay. So to everyone, you follow Amanda. Okay. Her, her Instagram handle is at Amanda G as in goat Pellegrino with two L's. Obviously we'll tag her when we post this on social media, but like, please follow her and please go read that email because it's such a lovely email. I like so vividly remember the day that I got it. I, I mean, I remember also because I was, you know, TV writing is like a, such a, a gig to gig type of work and you're freelance. And so you're often, you know, you're in a job and then you're not on a job and then you're on a job and then you're not on a job. And when I was querying smile and look pretty, I was, we had just wrapped on something and I had a couple months off, which when you're at the level I was, which was like a pretty low level assistant, it's pretty daunting to have that much time off. And I remember just, it was a horrible day. And I was just like upset that I hadn't found another job on TV yet. And, you know, and I remember just lying on my couch and then seeing her email pop up and just expecting it to be a no, because that's what I got used to when I was querying the first like unpublished book. And then it was the phone call email. And I immediately started crying and called my mom. (laughs) I love it. I love these stories. These stories are so inspirational and I mean, I know our listeners can't see you, but like your smile, you light up when you talk about it. So it's, it's so special to know that. Okay. So you guys started editing the novel together, right? Because I remember reading on your social media that she felt the novel needed a little bit of work, like structural and then line edits. So tell us about that. Yeah. So this is where sending something in really quickly kind of bit me in the butt because I edited it with Liz for like over a year. We worked together on it, multiple drafts. And I so appreciate it. Like we did one like massive round of edits that took me probably eight months to finish. And then I remember her emailing back and essentially saying like, look, we're definitely getting there, but it's not there yet, but you've put in so much work. And I like, at one point she said something like, I want you to know that, you know, if you think it's there and you want to go find another agent, do it. I just don't think we're there yet. And I think we can get there. You just have to, we just have to keep working. Do you think she said that because she was sensing frustration on your part or was it just because it had been so many rounds that I know you can't obviously know why she said something, but like, what's your impression? 
I guess like less frustration and more just, I had no idea what this process was. And it, the process is so different for every writer and every agent and every work that you come up with. And so I think I just never thought it would last this long and I didn't quite get it. And so I think it was not so much frustration, but I think I just expressed like surprise that we were doing it again. But I, I was just also another time where I was really grateful for her honesty because I was just so willing in that moment to be like, no, if you think we're going to get there, I want to put in the work because I trust you. And I know that you aren't going to send something out that's not ready to go out. So why would I leave and go find someone else who's going to send something out prematurely? Mm -hmm. Like, let's Mm -hmm. do it. Let's put in the work together. And so then it was probably another six months after that of editing. And then finally Liz was like, okay, we did it. Let's go. And it was oh my God, very satisfying at that point. <laughs> I love the honesty and I love how ethical she was too, right? Because these these things go hand in hand. It's very totally, easy yeah. to be a spaghetti agent and just be like, I'll just send this thing out because my client's getting impatient or you know, whatever the word is, whether it's impatient or frustrated or even just like eager, right? So I love that. This is just a testament to to what a great agent she clearly is. So, okay, you guys go out on submission. Do you remember more or less when that was calendar year? I do. It was March of 2020 or February of 2020. Oh my gosh. Are you serious? (laughs) Oh yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yep. Oh my gosh. Okay. Yeah. And the weird part too was, so one of the characters in the book works in publishing. And that is an industry I don't have any experience in. I've never worked in publishing before. And so Liz at one point said, like, let me try to connect you with an editor who you can just kind of talk to. And she might like this editor, like is not someone I plan to query or, but essentially like someone you can talk to, to make sure that you know, you know, the right words to say and what types of, you know, when I'm referencing like them, some kind of document on their computer, I know the right thing to say. And then really randomly, I was in a St. Patrick's day party, March of 2019. And my friend who invited me was like, Oh, you wrote a book. This is my friend, Natalie. And Natalie is an editor. And so I sat, I like, you know, hung out with Natalie to the, just to the line of being creepy at the St. Patrick's Day party (laughs) because I was like, this is cool. I need to know her. And then I asked her to grab coffee so I could just pick her brain on kind of the inner workings of being an assistant in publishing. And I think at that point she was an assistant editor. And we just kept in touch because we have mutual friends. And then, you know, when the book was ready, I emailed her and said, you know, the book that we had talked about is ready. I think we're going to be going out in the next couple of weeks. I really want my agent to query you. And Natalie was like, oh my gosh, yes, I cannot wait to read. This is going to be amazing. Can't wait. And so she was one of the editors we went out to, and it was almost a year after we had met at this random St. Patrick's Day party. (laughs) which is just very funny. I 
love it so much, but you know what? I mean, I'm willing to bet that Natalie thought it was a good thing that it was like a year after you guys met because it shows that you put in the work, right? Like it, it can be so, so easy to let anxiety get the best of you. The most well-intentioned person can do this. So one of my lines totally. is always like, do you want to honor your ambition or your anxiety? Because you have to pick one. You can feel both, but you have to pick one. And so I always say ambition over anxiety always because yeah, it would have been easy air quotes to just send it to Natalie after you guys, you know, ran into each other and met at a party or whatever, but you didn't do that. You put in the work and you made your novel as wonderful as it could possibly be on your end, of course, with Liz before Natalie saw it. So then, okay. So you guys went out on submission. Oh my gosh, March, 2020, which is just the month no one will ever forget. And how long until Liz called you to say you had an offer? She did something kind of brilliant and a little bit wicked, which is she... I love her already. Liz, if you happen to listen to this, I love you already. Brilliant and wicked. Yes. (laughs) She... I just remember this because we went out on submission on, I'll say like a Monday, and they typically say it's a two-week process. And... Liz sent out the submission and was like, okay, I'm going on vacation. I'm going to, you know, keep track of my emails. And if something massive happens, I will get in touch with you. But otherwise I'm going to be, you know, on a beach or something and like, don't freak out about it. (laughs) If I don't, I'm the kind of personality where I will email once a day and be like, have you heard anything yet? Like what's going on? In other words, you're a writer. (laughs) (laughs) I'm an impatient writer with anxiety. And so I very much appreciated that because it was a full week where I like couldn't panic because there was nothing for me to do. And I was so aware that like, if something was happening, she was going to reach out to me and everything was going to be fine. I don't remember exactly how long it took. I think it probably took the full two weeks between getting the, like that an editor wanted to get on the phone and then getting on the phone with Natalie, who was my editor. <laughs> so was she the first one to ask for a phone call? Yeah, yeah. Oh my gosh. Have you noticed how many firsts are involved in the story? <laughs> like Liz was your first choice and the, you yeah. know, and you sent it to her first and she got back to you first. And now Natalie, yeah. this is so amazing. It's kismet. Yeah, yeah, it truly is. It was wild, but very exciting. I really, really liked her a lot. And she was so excited about the book. So it felt like exactly what was supposed to happen. (laughs) I love that. I love that so much. Okay, so one of the questions that a listener had for you, because I mentioned that I become very friendly with our listeners and we all DM on Twitter. And she, I mentioned that I was going to interview you. And she said- Can you ask her, because she loves your book, she's like, can you ask her if she knew the genre of her book when she was writing it? No, I didn't. I mean, I kind of felt like it was a little genre-less. Like it doesn't quite... I don't like it. It's kind of dark humor and it's like pacey in a thrillery kind of way, but it's absolutely, there's no murder. It's not a thriller and it's like commercial. I don't, it kind of fits into a couple different slots, but no, I, I was not like consciously aware of it 
but I also wasn't really aware of anything about this industry that I couldn't. You like, just wrote it organically, before. right? Yeah. You just, yeah. it just poured out of you. I love that. I yep, feel like that totally. book was, was very much like inside of you and had to come out. Like you, you, you just had to make sure that, that you told the story. So what about with your second book? I don't know if you're allowed to share anything about it, but you mentioned that you took a year to write. Did you know the genre then? Yes. Book two is more of a psychological thriller, which is like my favorite genre. <laughs> so it feels, it was very fun to write. I can, I think we'll, we're going to be announcing it officially soon, like in the next week or two. Yay. Um, so by the time this airs, it'll be public information. Good. Oh, okay. <laughs> yes. It's about a woman, the week of her wedding, she lives in the like Upper East Side in New York and is marrying this like very wealthy kind of old money guy. And she, it alternates chapters between the week of her wedding and her time at like an evangelical mega church college. And something that happened to her at college resurfaces the week of her wedding that she needs to deal with. And let me guess, she's not super wealthy herself. So there's like a huge class chasm. Of course. Oh, yeah, See, this is sure. how you build tension, people. Just mm-hmm. saying. Right. I love it. I love it. I love it. And I want to read this book because you're a very good writer. Oh, For all you. of our listeners, if if you want to know what writing on a lion level is, please go read Amanda's book. I'm obviously I'm talking about Smile and Look Pretty because I have not read the second novel, but I'm sure it's also true of the second novel. It's very pacey very tense. There's tension in every single scene and the tension keeps escalating. And so you did, I know you know this, so I don't have to tell you, but you did a really good job. This was so good. Thank you. Thank you. Okay. So another question you mentioned writing for TV, which is easier, which is harder, which would you prefer? Be honest. You have to be honest. I'm putting you on the spot. (laughs) Truthfully, they're kind of two different to compare. She's going to give me the diplomatic answer, people. What do I do? (laughs) (laughs) They're just, they're so different in so many ways. You know, writing books can be so solitary and you're just, you know, I was just in my apartment or at a coffee shop all day by myself writing. And it becomes more collaborative when you share it with agents and editors and you start getting feedback and stuff. But for the most part, it's like a pretty solitary But for TV, it's collaborative, like from day one, you're just sitting around conference room, talking to all the other writers all day about story and every decision about, you know, what scenes we write is made together and we talk about it all day. And then the script writing process is, you know, more solitary where you get assigned a script, you go off and write it and then you come back, but then you're getting notes from the showrunner and you're getting notes from the studio and notes from the network. And then you go into production and you get notes from the actors on their lines and you get notes from the directors on like shooting locations and camera moves and you get notes from, you know, the props department will tell you, you know, it says in the script that he's eating a burger, but we'd really like him to eat a hot dog. And, you know, everyone has notes even just, and so it's really cool because you get so many different minds on everything. And there's just so many like incredibly specialized artists who are able to bring what they know so well to the words that you wrote. And I love that part of it. I think it's really fun. But then alternatively, there's also something really nice about when you write a book and you (laughs) just get like one or two people's opinions instead of hundreds of people's opinions. Um, (laughs) Until you go on Goodreads. (laughs) That's right. Yes, exactly. (laughs) 
<laughs> exactly. So they're so different and I love them both. I think they complement each other well because as a natural introvert, it's nice to, you know, when you're on set all day, talking to people, it can be really overwhelming and it's nice to be able to go home and be alone and write. But then also when you're home alone and writing and not talking to anyone, but your barista for a couple of days in a row, it's nice to then be able to do the TV stuff and be around other artists. So I guess you're telling our listeners that they have to do both. I am going to let you get away with this answer only because your book is really good. Um, (laughs) (laughs) Okay. So question in terms of the writing process, what do you think you struggle with the most and any advice on how to improve or, or, or feel better about that? And then what do you think comes perhaps a bit more easier to you? And then any advice you might have on that too. And remember your advice is, is supposed to go to our listeners. So they're like, most of them are not published yet, but soon, kind of like you in 2018. Think about you in 2018. Those are really good questions. I think the hardest part is not being a perfectionist for your first draft. I find that to be difficult and just kind of let yourself write through the bad stuff because the good stuff will come from it. I actually learned, I feel like I learned a lot about that through TV writing because so much of it, when you're in this conference room pitching and talking to all these writers, like you have to say all the bad ideas too, because something really bad that you pitch, another writer can be like, oh, actually, if we take this part of that bad idea, we can turn it into a good idea. And it's not, you know, that different when you're sitting down and struggling to start a chapter because sometimes you just have to get the bad ideas out. I also, and like, you know, first drafts are not perfect. And first drafts, I feel like Andrea Bartz, who I love, and I think she's brilliant. She's um, so brilliant. She's brilliant. She's so she, brilliant. I love her books. She's amazing. She blurbed Smile and Look Pretty, which is one of my greatest accomplishments. <laughs> and she says often that, which I had never really thought about until she said it, which is don't compare your first draft to someone else's final draft. And so when I, when you're writing, you're comparing your first draft of what you're writing to these published books that have gone through rounds and rounds and rounds of edits and have had, you know, these editors and agents who know how to sell books and know how to market books, go through it and make it better. And so that like really struck me and was so helpful to me when I was writing my second book, because that is something that I definitely struggle with a lot. It's like, oh my God, these sentences are so bad, but look at all these other writers who write so much better sentences. And it just takes a couple drafts to do it. (laughs) Well said, well said. And what about something that comes easy to you? Like something that you find you're great at and please don't be modest or the patriarchy ones. We don't want that (laughs) pressure. (laughs) I think something I'm pretty good at is like the self-discipline aspect of being a writer and being a freelancer because, you know, you don't always have someone telling you when something's due or how many words you need to write today or that, you know, lack of structure, I think can be really daunting to someone who's used to it. I think because, you know, I have this career in television, which is really tumultuous and up and down and doesn't have structure. Even like when you're on a job for a long time, some days you have to be on set at 6am and some days you don't have to be on set until 7pm. And there's no 
regulation. And so I think that helped a lot because you do learn to kind of schedule your time accordingly. And so I do think I'm pretty good at, you know, knowing what I want to get done and knowing how to get it done without freaking out and putting too much pressure on myself. I know a lot of writers who would be like, I need to write 5,000 words a day. And I just find that to be, I, a like, that's not something I can do. And there are days when, you know, I write 200 words and I have to kind of realize, okay, I'm not in it today. I'm going to go do something else that's more productive (laughs) and I'll come back tomorrow more refreshed and ready to go. But it does require a lot of kind of self-awareness and discipline. Can't pour from an empty cup. Absolutely. Exactly. What's something about being a published author, right? Like you've now debuted, your book is out in the world, you have fans, look at me, fangirling, but what's something about the experience that, it can be anything, it can be production, editorial, anything that you want to talk about that really surprised you, that you were like, I did not know that this is how this worked. It can be good or bad or whatever. That's a good question too. I think one of the things that surprised me the most was the importance of social media nowadays on like marketing and promoting yourself. I'm not a huge social media person and that's, it does not come very naturally to me. And when the book sold everyone around me on like all of the teams said essentially like you need to get better at this because it's pretty important. And so much of book promotion is self-promotion. And, you know, I have like an incredible publicist, Justine, but a lot of it is like, I don't know, a lot of it you're also responsible for. Well, of course it's a partnership, right? Like, yeah. It's something that exactly. a lot of authors expected to be like, well, I have a publicist, so I don't have to do anything. I'm like, no, no, it's <laughs> like, it's your book. No one is going to care as much as you care about your book. That's exactly right. Yeah, totally. And I just, I also didn't expect to, I've like met so many people on via Twitter and Instagram, like three, Andrea Bartz and Laura Hankin and Hallie Sutton are three like incredible authors who all blurred my book. And I met them all on Twitter and I just started following people. <laughs> I'm so bad at this, who I liked and whose books I loved and interacting with those accounts. And then, you know, not only are, is it helpful because they've done what I was wanting to do. And so you know, listening to their advice really closely was very helpful. But then when I was looking for blurbers, it was, I just DM'd them, I think, to ask because I figured why not? And then like Laura Hankin, you know, moderated my launch event. It was all because of social media. And I'm so grateful for all these relationships I had and with people who are like a step and two steps and three steps ahead of me, because it's nice to have, you know, a little guidance if I ever needed it and have someone to look at and say, okay, like that's how you get there. Cool. So yeah, I think I was just surprised by self-promotion and the necessity now of social media. Yeah. And it's, and so much of it is, is on you. And a huge part of that is there's all sorts of reasons, which I won't get into, but huge part of that is that because it's your book, because it's your name on the cover, right? Like the imprint, I mean, I'm again, listeners, you can't see this, but the imprint's little symbol is so tiny, right? But your name is big and prominent on the cover. It makes sense for the request to come from you, right? And, you know, just, I wanted to give a shout out to all the authors that Amanda mentioned and every single author out there who is so generous, right? Like the writing community, and this includes established published writers, is such a generous community. Like people just help each other out so much. And it is absolutely so inspirational to see how, you know, you just described Amanda, the situation where you could 
obviously like continue climbing the ladder, looking to the women who are a few steps ahead of you. And now, you know, you're giving advice to the people who are also on that same ladder, but perhaps you are a few steps ahead of them. So, so that's a really special thing. Yeah, it's great. It's so, the, the community really is so generous. I think that's like a really brilliant way to put it. It's so true with their time and with their advice and, I think there's always, you know, a lot of this industry is a lot of it is hard work and a lot of it is luck. And I, I think there's a level of like, you never quite forget what it's like to have your first book come out and the process to get it there. And not only just writing, but who you met and, you know, it's really awkward to ask people to blurb your book. Like that's a huge responsibility and that's really tough. And I'm not sure I'll ever forget that. And I'm so thankful for everyone who did it for me. But now if I'm ever asked, I think I'll have a very hard time saying no, because I totally get how hard it is and how necessary it is and how, how important that connection and that relationship is. So yeah, it is a really generous industry. It's really fun to be a part of. I agree. Okay. Final question. Can you recommend us a book? Ooh. Oh, this is tough. Any, any book that you're reading or that you've read or that you want to read even it's, you know, a huge part of, of what we do is talking about great books. And so I mm-hmm. want to make sure that you get the opportunity to share one that you love or one that you're excited about. Maybe, I don't know. I'm reading and kind of obsessed with the plot right now. And I, so I would, I, and I really would recommend it. I think it's so good. <laughs> and so interesting and so fast. I also really loved Never Saw Me Coming by Vera Kurian. I'm not sure. I also exactly don't know how to pronounce her last name, but it's really good. It's incredible. Really good. Really like really funny <laughs> and in like just an interesting way. There are so many lines that like, I wish I thought to write. I feel like she does this sometimes where like, she'll be, I, oh my gosh, I have to think of a good example. Things like they were having a bunch of meetings. It was probably over something boring. So I didn't really think about it again. And I like so often wish, like I, I wasn't until I was reading that book where I was like, that's a hilarious thing to say. Cause that's exactly what the main character would think. Just like dismiss it. Cause it's probably boring. <laughs> that's so funny. It's hilarious. And it's great for storytelling too. It's, it's so good. So good. Okay. Well, Amanda, it has been a huge pleasure. Thank you for joining us. Thank you for sharing your query letter with us. Thank you for all your generosity. I know that our listeners appreciate it so much. And as do I. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. This was so much fun. Alrighty, let's kick off another Q&A session. Remember, if you have a question for us or if you are looking for comp titles, go to my website, biancamaray.com, go to the podcast page and there is a link there that you can follow whereby you can record your question. Please remember it cuts you off after a minute. So we're getting a lot of people who are launching into these long things and then they have to start again and be super, super fast. So they speed walk their way through their questions. So perhaps just give it some thought before you phone in we will try and get back to you as soon as we can and remember if it's a question that's super specific to your particular book it may not be something we can answer on air because we are trying to get through as many questions as possible that'll benefit as many people as possible so do try and position it in a way that other people can learn from the answer as well all right I recently listened to the podcast and an author was pitching a book as YA and Cece and Carly mentioned it could be pitched as an adult novel. And I was curious how you make that determination 
Is it the weight of the topics? Because I'm assuming in both cases, the ages of the characters stay the same. Carly, would you like to answer our first question for us? Yeah, so the question about YA versus adult and how we make that determination. My answer to this one is, for me, it's really just about audience and tone. You know, there's there's so many factors here. It doesn't always matter to me, like, what the age of the character is at all. A lot of it is the way that it's written. So thinking about your comps, that's a big thing. You know, if your comps are YA or your comps are adult, that makes a big difference. Sometimes we don't know the answer to that question. Sometimes the market has to decide. For example, one of my clients, JL Richardson, she wrote a book called Gutter Child. And when we were in the conception phase of that idea, it was YA, right? And, you know, we kind of figured it out. What's the story we're trying to tell? The evolution of that. And then we ended up selling it to an adult imprint. But there was tons of crossover appeal. But, you know, you can't always predict these sorts of things. You can't always know that you're going to have crossover appeal. That's one thing I always say in the podcast is don't don't plan for crossover appeal, right? It just happens. So there's a lot of factors at play, but I would say tone, audience, and comps are the big, big key factors. Wonderful. Cece, was there anything you wanted to add to that? Just that I totally understand where the question is coming from. It's just one of those things in publishing that's difficult to explain in a didactic way because it involves a lot of variables and a lot of subjectivity. So I agree with Carly. It's, you know, content, voice, tone. One person once told me that YA deals with a lot of firsts, first love, first time being bullied, first experience with grief. And that's not a hard and fast rule, but I, I did really enjoy that explanation. So that might also be helpful. Wonderful. Okay, question two. Hi, is it universally acknowledged among publishing house editors that words like suddenly started seem amazing to name a few should be avoided? In my writing group, I suggested to the others to consider not using those words based on things I read by writers such as Stephen King. I wanted to know if I was correct in making these suggestions. Would our manuscript appear unready if it contains those kinds of words? I get that agents care more about plot character hook, but I know an emerging writer needs to appear like she's done her homework. What do you think of the advice to not worry about it, assume it's a copy editor's job at a publishing house to point them out, or is it important as an emerging writer to get those words out of our manuscripts before submission? So, okay, filler words are always a great question. I always recommend doing everything you can to whip your manuscript into perfect shape. Because the reality of the industry is that more and more books are only being bought when they're in a near publishable state. So advice in the vein of, oh, don't worry because your copy editor will catch that or really any future person will catch that is doing the writer a disservice. If you can spot a problem, then assume it's your problem to fix. I wish that weren't the case, but as with any other competitive art-based industry, the reality is often ruthless. Thanks, Cece. Carly? I don't have anything to add. That's what I was going to say. You know, when you can take care of things ahead of time, knowing that, just do it, right? It's, it's an easy fix. Wonderful. Okay, question three. Hi, Bianca, Carly, and Cece. Thank you so very much for everything that you do. Your voices have followed me as I have road tripped across the mountains in Costa Rica, as I drop my puppy off for daycare, and as I go to work. So I am incredibly grateful for all the advice that you have to offer. I have two questions. My first question is, I am a writer of color working on an intergenerational story of women of color from my culture. My question is, as agents who do not belong or are not closely familiar with the culture of the characters in a manuscript, what do you find still works and even excites you about such stories? What are elements of such a, quote, foreign culture, end quote, story that would make you leap off your chair to make an offer of representation? And do you have any titles that come to mind? 
My second question is primarily for Carly, as I have heard her discuss the importance of author brand, both in her critique of query letters and in the workshops she offers. Is it possible to have an author brand that runs the gamut of different literary genres? In other words, I am a picture book writer and I have even had an offer of representation as a picture book author, but I'm also a middle grade and adult fiction writer. And while I may not be querying all of these works all at once, can I still hold on to each of these identities, all of which are very near and dear to me and still have a brand? Thank you. So I think this is an excellent question. It's very thoughtful and really happy, happy to tackle it from a few different angles. So I think ultimately what works, you know, when I'm thinking about learning about a culture that I don't know about or what gets me excited about a manuscript in that space, what comes down to it, to me, it's all about specificity. I was trying to think of, you know, as you said, what are those titles, you know, that inspire that, you know, a a big one that comes to mind for me is Kite Runner, right? Like that book took over the world. It was a very, very specific book about a very specific place, you know, in a war zone and Afghanistan, but everybody was able to really feel that book and so, so gut-wrenching, right? And heart-wrenching. And there was, you know, I think there was an eventual sequel to it as well. So for me, it's just that specificity, right? Like humanity, that, that we're all human. And I think that's what it all comes down to. And when you can really be specific about your culture and you know your culture best, right? So you can get all of those specifics. I, I think really, you know, that that's the most important thing. I don't know if I want to belabor this too much, but I was thinking about why it was that people liked American Dirt so much. And, you know, for the people that liked it, they liked it, right? We don't have to get into a full, full conversation about that. But what they liked about it, I think, was the specificity, right? Not saying it was, you know, it's the book we want to kind of tout as, as the best example. But I think for all its problems, it was the specificity that people connected with with that book, whether the specifics were accurate or not accurate. <laughs> Again, up for debate. But people felt like I think that was potentially why they wanted to like it. So B, part B was about author brand in different categories. So the thing you want to think about is audience. You want to think about your kid lit versus your adult. I think those are kind of the two separating factors because say someone was to, you know, Google your name or they heard you in an interview and they're trying to find you, you know, you're promoting one book or the other book. They want to know that it's actually you that they're finding, right? And so if you're promoting a kid lit book and then they go to your website and it's all adult focused, you know, they might get confused like, oh, maybe I didn't find the right person. So you need to be really clear with your branding kind of images, the way that your website is designed, you know, the way that you promote your projects. Just be really conscious of that because it, it happens, right? You're I always say like writers are creative people. You're, you're going to write in various categories over the course of your life. Lots of writers do it. You know, Jennifer Weiner, you know, built this whole career in women's fiction and then, you know, did a middle grade series. So it's totally possible. It's just really being clear with the branding and making sure that your audience knows where to find you when they want to find you. Wonderful. Thank you. Cece? I want to begin by saying that that was such a lovely message. So thank you for listening because we're so grateful. Yeah. And to build on Carly's great answer about specificity, which I fully agree with, to me, the element that most stands out is what I call the personal universal element. So that's when an author leans into a single character's specific experience in a way that draws a larger, relatable insight. So for example, one of my favorite books is called The Pearl That Broke Its Shell by Nadia Hashimi. It is entirely different from the culture that I grew up in. Entirely different. The protagonist is facing problems that I do not, like, I absolutely cannot relate to the specific problems. However, her desire for agency, her special relationship with her grandmother, those were very familiar to me. 
And so I think that leaning into these elements, the personal universal elements, the thing that makes us all human is essential. And I do want to be clear. You did ask like, what are the elements that make you jump and offer representation? Elements alone will not do it. It all comes down to the execution, meaning that's your talent of taking, you know, words and turning them into a story. You also mentioned like title ideas. I don't know enough about your story to suggest title ideas just because all we know is, you know, women of color set in a foreign culture. But I keep a note on my phone whenever I hear something, whether it's on a TV show or something that someone says and I go to myself, oh, that make a good title. I write that on, on the note on my phone. So I have a whole bunch of titles. One of these days, I hope to use one of them to match with one of my clients' works. But the thing about brainstorming is the more you do it, the better you get at it. So I would just keep a note on your phone about that. Wonderful, Cece. Thank you. Okay, question four. Hi, everyone. I have a question about full manuscripts. If you have had a request from an agent and you sent out the full to them, and it's been four weeks, and in the meantime, you've gotten more feedback and have revised and have a new draft that you think is stronger and you don't have any reason to suspect that the agent has begun looking at your work yet, what is the best way, if any, to approach the agent and ask them to consider the newer version? Thanks a lot. Okay. This is a, this is a good question. We get, we get asked this all the time. And I feel like this is one of those things where I can speak to my opinions about it, but every agent's going to feel really differently about it. I have really mixed feelings about this. I have really mixed feelings about this because I honestly believe that you should only be sending one version of your manuscript. And I'll tell you why. You have one chance to, to win our attention, you know, win our passion. And if you send me another draft, you know, whether it's, you know, a month, six weeks, two months later, knowing that I haven't read it totally fine I understand that but you're telling me that you weren't that confident about your first draft or you know you there's there's things about it that could have been improved on so then I think okay why weren't those improvements made before you sent it to me the first time and this is a total you know debut issue of course you know sometimes you don't know things until you know them and I I understand that I have a certain level of empathy for this because I, I get that it's that it's a, a complicated you know terrain to kind of manage right you're getting feedback at various stages and you want to implement it and you want to put your best foot forward but to me putting your best foot forward isn't sending me multiple emails about read this draft know this draft you know this draft right to me it's about putting your best foot forward is having confidence in the material that you sent out and believing that that is the right draft so I don't know I think I'm I think I'm a bit witchy about this one I I really like I really like just one really great draft if you are to send me another draft later on is that to say that I won't read the new draft no I probably will read your new draft but just know that I'm gonna have that in the back of my mind that you know, I, I've read a few versions of this potentially. And just before we get Cece answering on that, as someone who looks at all the submissions we get for Books with Hooks, you know, when we first launched it, we said to people, please send your final draft, the most polished version, and ask people to tick that it was the most polished version. And they would say, yes, it is. And then I promise you, a week later, they would send me the updated version and go, they caught a whole bunch of things, and this is now the best up-to-date version. And then I would save that draft. And then two weeks later, I'd get another email that they've now gotten feedback from the beta readers and they've decided to change everything and now this is the most up-to-date version and sometimes I'd even get a fourth which really undermines your confidence in this writer because you're going at every single point in these four weeks you thought this was the best version 
And every single time you are sort of undermining that and it doesn't send the best message. Cece? Yeah, I agree with what's being said. It's, you know, this is a question we get a lot and the answer often makes me feel like a jerk because it makes me feel like I'm calling out writers. That's not the intention at all. The intention is to give you the best advice to make sure that you can succeed. I feel like if you're in a situation where you just realize that the full you sent isn't the best one, you probably fall into one of two camps. Camp A, you queried too soon. If you're still in a stage where beta readers are getting back to you, you should not have sent that full to begin with. And that was a mistake. And you know what? Just own up to the mistake and fix it, but don't do it again. Camp B is actually quite a common camp that we don't talk enough about, which is you're just being anxious. After that thing is out in the world, you're feeling anxiety because you spent so much time working on it and now you don't have it anymore. And so every little bit of advice that you get, and sometimes it's not even advice directly related to your work, makes you want to rewrite. I recommend not listening to that anxiety. Just don't listen to it. Make sure that your ambition is on the driver's seat, not your anxiety, and work on something else. A lot of people think that, oh, actually, I caught this mistake. I promise you, If you did a good job, if you followed our advice in terms of getting feedback from everyone, revising, giving it time, polishing, studying the craft, then that is your best work and you have to let it go because otherwise we wouldn't be able to acquire manuscripts. It's just, it's just not how things work. So stuff happens. I get it. Totally get it. Just make sure that it's not your anxiety because I feel like a lot of times it is. Speaking as a writer, I know that there is no better way to make me pick up everything that I got wrong than to press send. I will spend weeks on something and I'll think it's great. And as soon as I press send is when I notice all of those mistakes. So, you know, I I say this having been there myself and I'm also an extremely impatient person, but this is something that I've learned to curb myself down the line. What were you going to say, Carly? Well, I was just going to say this kind of to me, extends to a larger conversation around boundaries, right? Like, as agents, we have to create certain boundaries around our work, you know, what we're what we're willing to accept, what we're not willing to accept, how much our time is worth. And as an agent, the most valuable thing that I can give anybody is my time, right? Because I get paid on commission, right? Like my time is what I have to give. And so when I think about, you know, having firm boundaries, part of that is that, you know, sometimes I'm not going to accept, you know, multiple drafts of something. I don't have time. There's, you know, admin labor that goes into this in terms of like updating the latest file to my Kindle. There's a lot of things that go into this. So yeah, I agree with Cece. It doesn't feel good (laughs) to be a bitch about this, but, but, you know, sometimes we have to have really firm boundaries. Yeah. And, and just on that, you know, in the beginning with books and hooks, I was really trying to accommodate writers as much as possible because being a writer, I know what it's like, but you know, and, and each writer goes, what's the big deal? If I send you three files over three weeks, it'll take you two seconds to do it. But if all 200 people who are submitting to books with hooks do that three times over three weeks, it really is a big deal. It, it really does add up time-wise. Okay. Question five. How do you choose a title for a short story collection? Oh, okay. I love that this question has like a really clear answer. So I would recommend picking the title of your favorite story. Probably each of your stories has a different title. And so I would go with your favorite title. Another way to do it is to find a common thread or theme that all of these stories share and then giving that a title. A good example that I can think of, it's one of my favorite short story collections. It's Roxane Gay's Difficult Women. It has stories entitled I Will Follow You and Bad Priest and North Country, but there's also a story called Difficult Women. 
And that is both the title of a story and it's a common theme in the stories. It's being used ironically. They're, she's not actually saying the women are difficult. She's saying they're being, you know, they're, they act in a way that society perceives them as difficult because of the way society puts pressure on them, obviously. But yeah, that's a great title. So that's what I would do. Wonderful. TC, thank you. Kali? I'm just going to plug a client book here. So I have my client, Lindsay Wong. She wrote a short story collection and we pitched it with one title, which was Careful Dying, which was the title of one of the stories. And I love that title. I think it really does capture also a lot of what the what the book was about. But we ended up going with a new title, which was Tell Me Pleasant Things About Immortality. And it has a bit more of a lyrical tone to it. It's a bit longer. It's a bit contradictory. But it really says, I think, a lot more about, you know, what we're going to find in the book. So I think that's what Cece was getting at was, you know, let's try to pick one of the titles of the short stories, but let's also pick one that does encompass a lot of the larger themes. Wonderful. Thanks so much, Kali and Cece, for answering those questions. Remember, go to biancamaray.com, look at the podcast page, and you will find the link there to record your question for us, and we'll do our best to get to it as soon as possible. And that's it for today's episode. I hope you'll join us for next week's show. In the meantime, keep at it. Remember, it just takes one yes. Calling all memoirists. I'm so excited to let you know that I've put together an incredible all about memoir lineup for Saturday the 11th of May from 10 a.m. to 5 p.m. Eastern Time in which six amazing speakers guide you through everything you need to know to write a memoir that will sell. You'll get opportunities to ask questions of best-selling memoirists while also standing a chance to have your query letter live critiqued during the webinar. To see the awesome lineup and to register, go to biancamaray.com. There's an early bird promotion for the first 50 delegates who sign up. Come and join us and get your memoir groove on. Calling all memoirists. I'm so excited to let you know that I've put together an incredible all about memoir lineup for Saturday the 11th of May from 10 a.m. to 5 p.m. Eastern Time, in which six amazing speakers guide you through everything you need to know to write a memoir that will sell. You'll get opportunities to ask questions of best-selling memoirists, while also standing a chance to have your query letter live critiqued during the webinar. To see the awesome lineup and to register, go to biancamaray.com. There's an early bird promotion for the first 50 delegates who sign up. Come and join us and get your memoir groove on.